as we enter into this new year together. Amen. So I trust that your holiday season, uh, since it's been two weeks since we were together as a church, was filled, as was mine, with unadulterated blissful joy. (laughs) That's what it means, right? To be with friends and family a lot in enclosed spaces. We, we at one moment in time, I think, had in our house, which is medium-sized, ten adults, five children under five. Now, for some of you, that's probably a small-ish gathering, but for us, it did not feel that way. We saw all our children, we love all our children, we saw all our grandchildren, we saw friends, we saw children of friends, all of whom we have deep affection for, But it's also the case that those we love are in the midst of life, which is filled with transitions, challenges, disappointments. My wife and I, being wired as we are, take all of those things onto ourselves with a sense of responsibility. And it's not just that we take onto ourselves the burdens of those we love. Things don't stop happening in the world, right? We wake up and find ourselves engaged in threatening military conflict. We turn around and I, you know, before I ever get to Australia, it's going to look like the bottom of my fire pit in the backyard. We see violence being perpetrated against groups of people who we love and care about. And it's not just that these things are bad things that happen. I've become aware of my complicity in most of them. That in one way or another, I participate in systems that contribute to these things happening. And so, so life, I can start to resemble in my mind this person who is increasingly weighed down, trudging along lower and lower to the ground, burdened by the cares for people I love, by what's going on in the world, and even by my own self, right? I still, as a human being, am deeply flawed. I have all sorts of proclivities and propensities towards defensiveness, anger, sinfulness, that I have not yet emerged from. And so there's a a scripture that I want to offer you this morning, an invitation that Jesus makes to humankind that I have found myself contemplating more and more. It goes like this. This is Jesus speaking to a crowd of people. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens. Oh, doesn't that sound deliciously alluring? Right? Which of us in the room <laughs> would say, nah, I'm good. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. The problem is he goes on. So, and I will give you rest. Nice. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
Now, Jesus obviously has a problem with invitations. Right? We in Christendom know that, especially in the secular West, there are a lot of people who hold church at arm's length for a whole variety of reasons, most of them valid. But what it means is that we have to be really good at inviting. We have to be sophisticated. Our invitations have to be kind, warm, welcoming. Little bit of intrigue. A correct font, good graphics. <laughs> right, we have to do our invitation well with the hope that we will overcome the resistance of people. We've learned from history that people today aren't very motivated by threat as they used to be. It still might be the case that we could promise wealth and riches, but that too is on the wane. So our invitations have to be good. Jesus, however, seems to have the opposite problem. He seems to have a whole lot of people who want to come to the party he's throwing or who want to be connected to God through him, <laughs> and he chooses to produce invitations that make people pause and say, wait a minute, I'm not sure. Right? Jesus says things like, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. <laughs> That's going to make them come in in droves, right? <laughs> then come follow me. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And so the invitation that we encounter today is kind of tepid compared to those, but nonetheless troubling. Take my yoke upon you. All these wonderful things that Jesus seems to promise, these ways of being rest, ease, lightness. But to do it, you have to embrace the identity of an ox upon whom Jesus places this thing on your shoulders that is part of the apparatus by which weights, burdens, things to carry or haul are attached. And it's part of the whole bigger apparatus of like a bit in your mouth through which this master directs your paths. And I think, well, Jesus, I want the good stuff, but I am an autonomous, self-determining Adult, I've spent my whole life trying to disentangle myself from dependencies, from being beholden to anybody. And so you're telling me that in order to get the goods that you want me to get, I have to, I have to be your ox. And the invitation of Jesus into this way of being is additionally, I don't know, puzzling, because it's not like Jesus is saying, Either no yoke or my yoke, right? That's your choice. Jesus seems to be looking at a crowd of people and perceiving a way of being in them where they are yoked. They are experiencing the opposite of whatever he's promising, the opposite of ease, stress, the opposite of lightness, heaviness, the opposite of, uh, of rest, weariness, because of a form of yokedness whether to themselves or to systems, who knows what. 
But Jesus seems to be saying, you know, the choice for you is not whether or not you will carry burdens in the form of a yoke. It's just whose yoke are you going to carry, right? He has a view of you and I as human beings, where in some form or other we are yoked. We are controlled, as much as we don't want that to be the case. And Jesus just says, yours doesn't seem to be making you happy. I have an approach to this whole thing that will give you the way of being that you want. And there are two things that make me pay attention, that make me willing to give what Jesus is offering some consideration. The first is that I do easily become weary. I become the kind of person that Jesus describes. As I seek to live life my own way, thinking that I'm yoking myself, that I'm my own master, maybe I'm not, I find out increasingly that that's actually not the case. I get weary. I get tired. I get burdened. It becomes overwhelming. I want some relief. And so if Jesus comes and says, I have a way of living that'll give you what you want, I think, well, maybe. And the other piece to the puzzle for me is that I basically have come at this point in my life to trust Jesus. That if Jesus comes to me as Jesus and says, I see what life is like for you, I have a different way that will actually enhance your experience, that will give you a way of living that's what you desire, I'm willing to trust him. I don't think he's performing a bait and switch. You know, that he's going to put a yoke on me, <laughs> a yoke on me, and I'll find out, oh, that's what you are after. You just wanted to control my life. You wanted to make my life miserable. You wanted me to do things that you didn't want to do yourself. I know Jesus enough that I'm willing to give what he's inviting me into a try. So that's the consideration for us this morning. What is this yoking of Jesus? For those of you who experience weariness, heaviness, distress as you move through life. Is there a way of being with Jesus that would make you and I willing to contemplate some form of being yoked under him? And what does that look like? <clears throat> well, this statement of Jesus comes at the end of Matthew chapter 11. And it's a response, seemingly, from Jesus to a series of interactions that he has with individuals and groups of people that are just through and through fraught. The central theme is that people are looking for something, help in some way in life, from God. But they all have misperceptions of God, who God is, how God manifests in the world around them that produces in them frustration. Right? So it begins, the first story is, uh, from John the Baptist. So here, this is a relative of Jesus, one of the two or three people on the planet who at least at that time would have had the best understanding of who Jesus is, what Jesus is about. <laughs> but John at some point in time finds himself puzzled. He has given his life to preparing the way for Jesus based on the assumption that Jesus is this awesome hero who God has promised from of old to send 
to relieve the plight of the Israelites, to release them from their oppression, to make wrong things right, to correct injustice. But at this moment in time, John, having served Jesus in this way, having given everything, having expended energy, finds himself in prison. And Jesus, meantime, as John looks on at what Jesus is doing, Jesus has been mostly spending his time in tiny little rural towns and villages in the north and east of Israel. (laughs) And so John says, he sends a couple of messengers to Jesus with this pretty important to him question, are you the one God was talking about or should we expect somebody else? (laughs) Right? Like, did I get it right with you or should I be looking elsewhere? And so Jesus responds to the messengers. He sends them back, John's disciples, with a message saying, essentially, tell John what you perceive going on in the world around you from me. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the lives of the poor are transformed by the message of God's goodness coming through me. And it concludes by saying, but don't let yourself be scandalized on account of me. In other words, yes, I'm the one, but don't get thrown because I'm different than what you thought I would be like. Now, as those messengers are heading off, so John has been confused about Jesus. As those messengers are heading off, Jesus turns to the crowd who's just witnessed this whole thing, and he says to them, don't let yourselves be confused about John. He asks the crowd three questions. The same question three times. Why did you go out into the wilderness to see John, to gaze upon John? So John has been this phenomenon to the people. They've gone out far from home, across the River Jordan, into the wilderness to gaze upon him. And Jesus says, what was driving that? What was driving that activity? Did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind? You know, just a thing out in the wilderness, and Jesus answers the question, no. Did you go out to see somebody dressed in fine clothes? <laughs> they would have been disappointed if that was the case, right? Because John is dressed in rough clothes. And Jesus says, no, if that's what you were after, you would have gone to the temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus says, did you go out to see a prophet? And here he answers, yes, but I tell you, John is more than a prophet. So Jesus is saying, I think you went out because you sensed something of God in John that was provocative, that was stirring, that captured your attention, for which you were willing to drop everything, to go, to hear more, to be affected. But there's more going on than just a religious spectacle in John. And here Jesus, it seems like the floodgates just come open for him as he talks to the people. Because he says John was pointing the way towards heaven, towards something bigger than just himself. But here's the problem. Since the forerunners of John, you as human beings have been trying to violently take things of heaven. By violence, you've tried to take them unto yourselves. And Jesus says John came to prepare the way for what was coming from heaven, but you've been trying to do it on your own. And so he keeps going in this way, talking again and again and again in multiple ways about how the people in front of him have been misperceiving. (laughs) He says, 
You know, with me and John, you contradict yourselves. John advocated for fasting, and you say he has a demon. Like, oh, don't tell us not to eat. That's of the devil. But I come eating and drinking, and you call me a glutton and a drunkard. He calls the people to account for how they interact with the past in a very interesting way. He says, you deride people who you think are villains from the past. And here he specifically identifies Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? He says, you, you denigrate Sodom and Gomorrah. You turn them into villains, those people. You say, we wouldn't have been like them. We're better than them. But I tell you, Jesus says, that you've had miracles going on right in front of you every day from me, and it has not transformed you. You have not been affected by what of me, of what of God you've seen in your midst. I tell you that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, if they saw what you see, they would have repented. They would have changed their ways. Right? This is often a little bit of, of a piece of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that's left out in contemporary tellings. Jesus concludes this whole section like this. For if the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom, it would still be in existence today. But I tell you that on the day of judgment, it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom than for you. <clears throat> Jesus then says a couple of more things about the difficulties that you and I as human beings have in understanding God, perceiving God in the world around us, about how our expectations are often frustrated because God comes in ways that we don't anticipate and what we're looking for is not God. And then he brings us back to this invitation. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it reminds me of this moment for Jesus, when at the beginning of the last week of his life, he comes to Jerusalem, and from a height, he sees the people down below. And they're scurrying, they're running, they're frantic, they're chaotic, they're lost in self-absorption and in fear and terror and self-justification. <laughs> and Jesus is just like this um, explosion of compassion where he looks down on them and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you to myself as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not listen, right? <clears throat> and so Jesus looks at these people and says, oh, you're so frantically striving. You are so overwhelmed with the burdens of life. I have a way for you that doesn't involve all this effortfulness, all this striving. An image that came to mind, I was thinking about this, it's like if we were to conceive of life instead of as this sort of individualistic thing, where for the most part we're competing with each other. Rather, we're all on an adventure together, a communal adventure from wherever we are now through the wilderness with Jesus as our leader to some wonderful destination. I think we'd all understand that if we're on a wilderness adventure together, we'd all have to carry something. We have to take things with us on the journey on behalf of ourselves and the others. So it'd be as if I, as I prepare for the journey, bend down and pick up my pack. And I, oh, this is the burden I have to carry. 
on the wilderness adventure. It's a big backpack, and I'm going to go like this. And, you know, I'm 56 years old now, and I don't carry as much as I used to, and it feels heavy. And so as I'm getting ready to go, (laughs) it'd be like Jesus comes to me and says, well, that's fine if that's what you want to carry on this journey, but as the leader, I'm also good if you want to carry this instead, right? And I would just think, I don't even care what's in that pack. I have no idea. I'll just say, yes, that feels pretty good. I feel like I'm out for a walk in the woods now. And there's something interesting about the way Jesus tells the story, because it's not in this telling of the story, this sort of what would Jesus do, right? Jesus doesn't give us in this story the details about what it would mean to be carrying the yoke that he offers us. He more tells us what it would feel like, right? It's not so much what would it do, and this is in kind, in keeping with how Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is. He says the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is one of the challenges, I think, one of the last challenges that the story presents, is it doesn't give clear instructions about what the different path is that you will take or what the different choices are that you will make in some formulaic way, it describes the signs of having come into this way of relating to Jesus. So I can give one example from my own experience of what this is like, and one from us as a church. So in my own experience, I've become aware (laughs) through myself and through help that I have a propensity towards defensiveness. I think this is a, an affliction that is common to humankind, particularly to maleness. I don't mean to be gender specific, but I've encountered others of my kind who struggle with this as well. And what I've become aware of as I've leaned into it is that at least in part, I feel the need to justify myself, to validate my standing. And so anything that calls that into question, that calls my goodness, my awesomeness, my correctness into question, I rail against, right? I resist because all of a sudden, my good standing is under threat. My validity, my qualifications as a human being, and I can't tolerate that. And so as I've come to Jesus and interacted about this with him, Jesus says, whatever is going on in the big wide world, let me tell you, and here he puts his yoke on me, let me tell you that your standing with God is not under threat at all. You are completely secure in your standing with God. There's nothing that you can do or refrain from doing that will call that into question. And I find that the yoke of Jesus carries nothing of condemnation or shame or the need for me to validate myself, and that that trickles down into my experience the rest of life. I've experienced this lightness and ease, too, for us as a church. 
<clears throat> Many of you know that one of the central storylines for us over the past 10 years has been moving from a practice, a way of doing church, of which exclusion could be a part into inclusion. And a central focus of that has been welcoming and bringing into full inclusion uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer individuals. The thing is, it's not that we went from being who we were and now inviting into that people who were formerly excluded. We had to completely transform our notion of how to do church and how to understand Bible and how to interact with God to become a community where the possibility of exclusion just didn't exist anymore. And so what that meant was entering into a way of being in which things like scrutiny and assessment and violation and a system of rules, they were not a part of what it meant to belong here anymore. So all of those things that facilitate, that enable the possibility of exclusion, developing rules, scrutinizing, assessing for the possibility of belonging, and enforcing, violation, producing exclusion, all of those things are gone. And so we have found, both those of us who are administrating this whole system and those of us who are under scrutiny, and anytime you have scrutiny, everybody is scrutinized, we have found joy and ease and the relieving of burdens because of that. When we describe to other people what's happened in our church in this regard, I will often feel a little hint of guilt. Like church, we had learned, was supposed to be serious and severe and heavy and weighty. But instead, this aspect of what church meant to us is just gone. And so it's like we sometimes feel we're getting away with something. Did we turn towards a different way of doing church just because we didn't want to do this thing that was heavy and burdensome and onerous? But then I come to this passage from Jesus, and Jesus says, no. It means you're hitting the mark. It means the ease you feel, the lightness, the relief from having to do these heavy, oppressive things, from carrying these burdens that you put on yourself, are gone and that you've actually come under my being your master. And so I think for all of us, the invitation is there into this way of relating to Jesus. Saying yes to him placing his yoke on us. If we're willing to take that step. So I'd like to invite the band to come. I want to invite us all just to, into a moment of reflection on this, a meditation moment, to consider what this might look like or feel like for you or for me. Jesus' invitation is into a way of relating to him that offers the possibility of ease, of lightness, of rest from weariness. But a part of it is being willing to say, yes, Jesus, I am willing to let you place your yoke on me to in some way 
let you guide my steps, influence my thoughts, bring me into the possibility of this kind of experience. And so when I do it, I often just have, in a, in a prayerful way, I imagine it. I imagine Jesus doing this. I imagine saying yes to him. It may be for you that as you, as you contemplate something like this, you just find your own resistance, like, oh, Jesus, I don't like that idea. Help me understand what you're after. But I want to invite you into a moment of meditation, just of contemplating what this way of relating to Jesus would be like. So Jesus, together we bring ourselves before you. We feel you looking upon us, seeing our strivings, seeing all the ways that we're yoked and controlled by things, most of which we're unaware, and that you come to us with kindness and love, um, caring, a way of being free from so many things that we impose upon ourselves. Jesus, we give you this moment, come before you, help us contemplate what it would mean for each of us to consider saying yes to this from you, yes to this invitation.